0: Hey y'all, Evan here. Wherever you are, I hope you're keeping safe, well, and warm and that 2023 has proven kind to you so far. Things have been busy on my end as I've been producing a mini-series for the Southern Foodways Alliance's podcast, Gravy. It's been a fun and rewarding project, which found me eating all over my home state of Texas. You can hear some of that work right now by finding gravy wherever you listen. I'll be sharing extended versions of those episodes here soon, but until then, I want you to know about a show I think you'll really love. It's called Travel Tales by Afar, and it's a podcast about the transformational power of travel. On Travel Tales by Afar, fascinating people share their stories of life-changing travel, from novelist Maggie Shipstead's chilly Arctic saga to comedian Michelle Butoh's tale of getting stood up in Paris. If that all sounds good to you, stick around, because I'm going to share one of these experiences with you today. In the Travel Tales episode you're about to hear, writer Chris Collin hits the rails with his teen daughter, Cora. As the dream of high-speed rail in California inches ever closer, Chris wanted to celebrate one of the slowest trains around, the Coast Starlight, which has chugged up and down the west coast for the past half century. The train itself offers a mix of charming nostalgia and sublime deco beauty, while the destinations along the way offer opportunities to share the past and present of the west coast. Chris wanted to share this magic with Cora, who's hovering on the brink of parent-spurning adolescence, he says. For the two, the trip doubled as one last hurrah, one sentimental kind of trip nestled in another. If you like what you hear, check out all three seasons. You can follow Travel Tales by Afar on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Everyone has a favorite travel tale. What's yours? the passengers. They're just fun. I meet all kinds of people. Nice people, crazy people.
1: (laughs) I'm Aislinn Green. This is Travel Tales by AFAR. And today we're going to meet some nice people who had a mildly crazy adventure. Those people, they are Chris Collin, an author and AFAR contributing writer, and his 13-year-old daughter, Cora. In every episode, we hear from a traveler about a trip that really meant something to them. And in this season, we're actually sending people, writers, comedians, playwrights, out into the world to explore life's big questions. So we sent Chris and Cora on Amtrak's Coast Starlight train, which runs between Seattle and LA. Now, Chris has actually written several stories for Afar about his family adventures but this is the first time he's focused on a father-daughter adventure. Their big question? How probable is a good train heist? I'm kidding, kind of. Their quest was actually more poetic than that, but I think they can probably tell their story better than I can. All aboard. Mike Tyson, I we the world, I don't care who you are. Mike Tyson, I we the world.
2: That's Oklahoma. That's the dude's name, Oklahoma. I didn't know that was even an option, having your name be Oklahoma. But here we are, and like the state, this improbably named Mike Tyson impersonator is huge and fairly indifferent to my existence. You've probably pieced this together already, but we're on a train. Oklahoma, me, my daughter, Cora, and a couple hundred other humans, all chugging our way down the left side of North America for the next 35 hours. Streams and pines and meadows blur past. From his dated, space-age swivel chair in the glassy lounge car, Oklahoma stares out with a kind of regal dullness. Judging by the empties at his feet, he's on corona number three. Midway through corona number four, he finally swivels in my direction. Did I know that a few years ago he happened to have written and recorded a song called Mandy Sue? I did not know this. Well, I did, he says, and it can be found on YouTube. Very cool, I say. You can search it up on your phone, he adds. Awesome, I say. You have YouTube, right? he asks. At last, I take the hint and dig out my phone. Only two rules on a journey like this. One, watch the shimmering lakes streak past and the quilts of wildflower and the muffler shops and the tent camps and the Christmas tree farms and the yard sales and the tweens on trampolines and the dads inflating pools and everything else that adds up to a country. One that often feels more like a concept than an actual 3D place. The second rule, if a man named Oklahoma tells you to play his song on your phone, play his song on your phone.
3: Sunset, color,
2: remains a beautiful night. All right, thank you so much. Appreciate the ride. You can't talk about train travel without backing up and talking first about train stations. They're physically and emotionally integral to the whole operation. So it is that hours before meeting Oklahoma or anyone else, Cora and I and our little Roly suitcases make our way wide-eyed into Seattle's cavernous, hushed old King Street Station. With its solemn slabs of polished marble and heavy wood benches and ornate old lamps, it's a cathedral to old-fashioned waiting, an unrushed space where you take out a book or gaze up at the coffered ceilings and reflect on your upcoming, also very unrushed voyage. 1100 miles, Seattle, Portland, Eugene, Salinas, Santa Barbara, and a couple dozen other stops. Even among non-train fanatics, the Coast Starlight route is legendary, the best tour of the west coast out there. Cora, give us that old Amtrak trip description in your most saccharine advertising voice, please.
4: Okay, um... Along the route, we traverse steep mountain ranges, explore rolling gentle valleys, and skirt along the dynamically beautiful sandy shores of the Pacific Ocean. The scenery is breathtaking, the cities are unique, and the history is fascinating. LA Union Station. Yep. And roommate, and there's two. Mm -hmm. So come on in. Okay. Uh, You'll find the staircase on the right. When you get to the top of the staircase, hang another right. You're going
3: to be the second to last door on the right. So come on in. And right. there's a luggage right here on the left, but most those two should fit okay. in the room. All right. Thank you, you so can, much. You can play it by here. And I'll be back okay. there once we, uh,
2: once i am able to close
4: up. Awesome. Thanks. Okay, cool. Hello. Welcome back.
2: All right. Skinny stairs. Yeah, even skinnier hallway. Okay. Turn right. She said, yeah. Okay. So we're looking for eight. Oh, that is a very skinny hole. Oh. Wow! Well, oh my gosh! It's tiny! <laughs> wow! Oh
4: my god.
2: It's really tiny. Have you
4: guys done this before? No, have you? Oh yeah, this is my second time. Really? And the first time I didn't have any AC, so we're already up to a really good start. That's,
2: I'm happy about the AC. <laughs> well, how far are you going?
3: Um, Oxford. Okay. How about you guys? Uh,
2: LA. That's Jenna, our neighbor across the hall from our little roomette, three and a half feet by six and a half feet. Soon, Eddie the Porter drops by. So everything for you guys will be to the right when you come out your door.
4: So the second car back is the diner. The fourth car back is the sightseer lounge car. So the one with all the seats facing out and the windows and the views, okay? The dining steward, John, he'll come through We'll make an announcement
2: for reservations, for lunch, and then afterwards for dinner. Setting out on this trip, I'd asked Cora what her best case scenario would be.
4: I think the best thing, something mysterious happens. Like maybe there's a very mysterious passenger on board and maybe like smokes a cigar and tears over his solve it at the end, and then, like, I'll win honey. money.
2: That would be ideal. I don't have the heart to tell her that Agatha Christie-style on-board intrigue just isn't a thing. Frankly, you're lucky if you stumble across a measly diamond heist. Anyway, telling her this might have raised difficult questions about what I want from this trip. Over the years, I've taken Cora and her brother on various excursions to stretch their little pea brains. When the girl child turned six, I took her to the Mojave Desert to show her nothingness. She was an old soul with a dark curiosity about what lay beyond the cutesy, Pixar-inflected edges of childhood. At seven, I took the boy child to the Grand Canyon with a bunch of rugged but sweet men to show him what fun, non-toxic masculinity looked like. And now chorus 13. She's a serious drawer and painter budding soccer player, a wry observer, a skeptic about all things except animals. I'm pretty fond of her, and before the tractor beam of high school finds her, I wanted us to do something memorable and eye-opening and, I don't know, soul-adjacent together. I feel strongly that a train trip is one of those things. When you see a train in the distance rounding a bend or blowing its mournful whistle over a dark trestle, you feel something, right? Some kind of poignant, lonesome, romantic longing. But what is it exactly? What is it I want to happen over these 35 hours? For now, there's exploring to do, so off we go. And yeah, we do get sort of carried away just over how nice the rest of the train is. Here's business class.
3: Let's
2: check it out. Boy, these are your finer people. Show respect.
3: Oh, a lunch car. Oh my
2: god, this is beautiful.
4: Can you just come here anytime?
2: This is where it's at. This is amazing.
4: There are single chairs facing the window.
3: Ooh, and they turn a little bit. Oh my god, and the windows go and then bend overhead like those skylights. Oh man, this is
2: nice. As the train shutters south, we set up shop in the glassy lounge car. Cora promptly takes out her sketch pad and gets to work. Me, I just stare like a cow. The scroll of sights is stupendous and never ending. Snow-capped peaks in the distance, a dude sleeping in a minivan, an inflatable unicorn snagged on a log in a creek clabbered house with a gerbils for sale sign out front, $10 a piece. I have a perfectly good novel in my lap, and I don't pick it up once. At this point, you're probably thinking I've never left the house before. Not true. In fact, there's something about a train trip that automatically draws comparisons to past road trips you've done. As we sit there, I find myself reflecting on all the divine Karawakian adventures I've set out on over the years, only to find just different arrangements of McDonald's and Exxon's and IHOPs. Nobody admits this, but unless you're really deliberate about avoiding the highway, which is the main way you do a road trip, road trips often suck. The train, though, it's another animal entirely. The tracks cut right through people's lives, right through backyards and farms and small towns and lush valleys. You run close enough to peer into bedrooms, into pizza shops, onto back porches, into kale patches. Also, you're higher up than a car, and you're going just a little slower than a car. I realize these sound like tiny and technical details, a slightly different route, height, speed, but often it's precisely these tiny details that make all the difference, that tip us into grace. How many couples would never have fallen in love if the amount of vermouth in the martini had been ever so slightly off that night, or the typeface of Paris's subway system just 1% less romantic? or the vermilion in Vermeer's The Music Lesson, merely a plain old red. So it is that I'm suddenly seeing the West Coast for the very first time, despite living here 20 years. Oh, Cora, we are rolling into Tacoma, Washington now. Do you have any Tacoma trivia for us?
4: I do. I learned about the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, which was a suspension bridge that collapsed in 1940, just a few months after it was finished being built.
2: Gosh, did anyone die and the bridge collapsed?
4: Well, there are no human casualties, but there was a three legged dog that was left in the car when its owner had to run away.
3: Oh, that's sad
4: Yeah, well, I don't want to sound like I'm victim blaming, but there were two people who ran into the car to try to save the dog, but the dog bit them both, and eventually they had to save themselves and get off the bridge.
2: Oh but um, the dog miraculously survived and is living happily on a farm to this day, is that right? Yeah, of course. Okay, oh, thank you for that Tacoma trivia, Cora. You're welcome. At 12.30, we're summoned to the dining car. Unless you eat in your room, meals are social. We're seated with a friendly bicyclist named Richard. Over veggie burgers, he tells us about growing up with a dad in the FBI and about getting a history degree in college, but then stumbling into anti-submarine training. But mostly we talk about his years riding this very train and the people he met over other meals, which gives lunch a fun, recursive air, like people are just going to keep meeting in these same booths on these same tracks until the end of time. I've been doing it since I was in high school. When, when would that have been? What year, roughly? 1955.
0: And I've never taken the train, until oh. I made
2: it in. <laughs> <laughs> what, do you, what do you all like about
0: it? We like the scenery. We like the people we meet. It's restful, it's not stressful like it might be to catch a plane. You don't have to go through all the TSA restrictions. I'm, I'm taking just the just train go. down to see my dad in San Francisco. Area. <laughs> and this is a really nice, affordable way for somebody to get down there, but without having to drive the whole way. And I love being able to sit here and sketch when I'm on the train, it's really pretty. What are you sketching? Oh, I can show you, I guess, here, um, This is what I did earlier. Just, I really like the windows and the observation car. You get all kinds of different views from the train, like of um, sometimes junkyards or like lumber yards or something, but sometimes it's like, uh, there was like an eagle sitting on a, um, a log, Right by a river today, I was so, oh my gosh, sometimes you see these little snippets you wouldn't normally be able to see. Cool.
2: Maybe it's the hypnotic thunkety thunk of the tracks that breaks down barriers. Even Cora hits it off with our neighbor Jenna.
4: I'm reading um, A Good Girl's Guide to Murder. Ooh, I'm on the third book, it's Have you so good. No. Oh my gosh, oh it's my awesome, God. I love it. Yeah.
2: Afternoon gives way to dinner and then a magnificent sunset somewhere in southern Oregon. Back in our room, Cora reads, and I try to learn the little banjo-lele I'd stuffed into my bag. We're trained people at this point, the novelty having given way to a kind of timeless fondness, like we've been thunking along for days or weeks, we're not really sure. Finally, it's time to sleep. We reflect on our fellow passengers, Oklahoma will be getting off in Oakland tomorrow morning. Will he ever record another song? And then I kiss Cory goodnight and just stare at the dark window for a long time.
3: We're just leaving Klamath Falls. It's eleven thirty. I don't know what we're going past. Various little industrial operations in the midst of big fields lights here and there but mostly it's dark. Oh a few little houses tucked into some trees. This is cozy. This is like when you're a kid lying in the back seat of the family car as the streetlights pass overhead. You're up too late and you just feel the road through the car and sort of hypnotic and bumpy fall into a kind of cozy trance, that's what it feels like, I haven't been in a cozy trance like this in a while, alright, night, tape recorder
2: Okay, Court, we're uh, rolling into Oakland, we have to tell me.
4: Okay. There are hundreds of painted gnomes throughout the city that are painted by an anonymous artist, and they are attached to utility poles, or they sit on windowsills. They're just all over the city, but PG&E does not like them, and will be dispatching a crew to remove them.
2: Thank you. You've given me a lot to ponder. When trains first appeared, these gleaming creations embodied the future. Now they represent the past, a simpler, smokier era of ritzy club cars and parlor trysts and onboard barbers and beauticians. For me personally, they've also always represented Leslie Turner. After breakfast, I tell Cora about the day this tall, skinny young man walked out to the sweltering train yards at the Dallas train station, looked left and then right and hoisted himself onto the baggage car idling in front of him. The year was 1921, and tucked into his shoe were his life savings, 40 bucks. This, I tell Cora, was her great-great-grandfather. Leslie had gotten in the habit of riding the blinds, i.e. sneaking into the front platform of the baggage car and catching a free ride behind the piles of suitcases. Other times, he just rode on top of the cars, out under the wide sky. That's where he was on this trip, about a thousand miles from Dallas now, when he started getting sleepy. He laced his fingers behind his head, spread his legs for maximum stability, and closed his eyes. My great-grandfather didn't just ride the rails because he was broke. Something singular happens when you move over the planet by train. It's not complicated or poetic or allegorical. What it is, is you're watching this incredible movie scroll past, and it's not like any other movie in your life. Or so it was for my great-grandfather, until he woke up on top of that baggage car to find a Pennsylvania police officer poking at him. A Few days later, he was in prison. Not long into his incarceration, he learned that prisoners doing manual labor could ask the guard for permission to go buy smokes at a nearby store. My great-grandfather did just that. As the guard looked on, he jogged over, made his purchase, exited the store, and hopped into a delivery man's truck never to be seen there again. One of those rare self-pardons. I find myself picturing this event as just another little vignette someone might see from inside their own train. That after all is what this whole scrolling movie thing is about. The plot is the caprice of history, the sporadically engineered, mostly random unfolding of events piling on top of each other to amount to the world we know, or aspire to know. The plot is how the Ice Age ran a glacier over what's now a scrapyard. It's how lumber transformed the whole state of California, and how someone's bouncing a baby outside this old apartment complex, and someone else is taking their 15 minute break outside a KFC. The plot is this woman in a floral print shirt north of Soledad, who every single day for the last 50 years has stood in the doorway of her farmhouse and waved to this very train. This is what I wanted from this trip. I didn't need Cora and me to have deep conversations the whole time, like in road trip mythology. I just wanted us to watch this weird movie together for a while. We're north of San Luis Obispo when everything goes dark. We've slipped into a pitch black stone tunnel in a shrubby hillside. And when we emerge on the other side, we're perched dramatically along the western edge of a vast valley. Tawny, parched hills spill down to the valley floor, with its soft golden knuckles of faintly waving grass and in the distance you can see the poor chumps driving in the same direction along Highway 101. I've been one of those chumps, but I've never really absorbed this valley because the angle's wrong and because your eyes are on the road. And even if you could see it, you wouldn't really care that much because you're not in train mode. We keep winding along that edge, and soon we're skirting an adjoining valley, some live oak and manzanita lining a creek bed and some thick cows milling around near a barbed wire fence but otherwise just soft hills far as you can see. The train rolls into another tunnel, blackness all around, a few more minutes of chugging along, and then the track executes a rather tight turn, thus affording riders a view of ourselves, the front of the train having curved into sight of the rear of the train. Okay, Cora, we're pulling up to Simi Valley. What can you tell me about Simi Valley?
4: Well, Ronald Reagan was buried in Simi Valley, and before he was president, He was a lifeguard and he saved around 77 lives, and that led me to lifeguard world records, and the one for saving the most lives was met by Leroy Colombo, who saved 907 lives in 40 years.
2: Thank you, that's a great Simi Valley fact. Yep. 35 hours is the right number of hours. Lush Washington becomes hot, dusty Oregon, and you wake in Golden, California, which is misty and gray, and then hot and dry. You run right along the edge of the Pacific, vaguely perilous. Cora and I spot two dolphins arcing slowly out of the water. And then it's nighttime, and then we're packing up our things and approaching Los Angeles. In the days ahead, Cora and I will, of course, talk a lot about this trip the odd and oddly lovable cast of characters, the awesomeness of the sights, the adventure of it all. I also confess to worrying briefly that this wasn't one of those transformative epiphany kinds of trips. Did I fail my child as her existential travel agent? But then one night we're driving home from a late dinner and I catch sight of those streetlights passing on the highway and the rolling shadows on my kids' faces as they sleepily stare out at the night. You know what I mean, that deep, almost reptilian sensation of watching highway lights pass by, the cool of the window on your forehead, the edge of the old seatbelt against your collarbone, the rhythmic cathunk of the pavement underneath. A train is that. I mean, it's the train version of that, but that's what it is, all deep, wordless sensation, the kind that burrows, not in your brain, but your cells. For those 35 hours, sure, we talked and played cards and ate Amtrak veggie burgers. But at some level, we were in that trance. A train is a trance, a 60-ton trance. Whatever it's doing to you, it's doing beneath the surface. So there's your vague, squishy answer, my daughter. I have no idea what this trip was about, but I have faith it registered in our bones, and that's where we'll store the memories of Oklahoma and Richard and the smell of train tracks and the look of moonlight roving over a darkened field as you drift off. And Cora, lest you think I forgot, Here is the postscript on your great-great-grandfather. Half a century after he escaped, he returned to Pennsylvania. He was 72 now, having gone on to become a successful illustrator and a generally upstanding guy who paid actual dollars for his train tickets. Maybe something deep in his bones hadn't been sitting right because he walked up to that Pennsylvania prison and confessed. I guess the officials there had bigger things on their minds because they shrugged and let him go. There's my trivia for you, Cora.
1: Thanks for the trivia, Cora and Chris. I asked Chris what it was like to travel with his daughter as the world of adolescence beckons, as he puts it.
2: She's a very thoughtful person, and there's usually a lot going on internally. I tend to just sort of blather and thought across the my mind, attempted tend to articulate it. But she's always thinking like 10 things and saying two of them. So it's interesting to travel with someone like that.
1: Chris also said that because he didn't really travel much as a child, he's committed to spending every last dollar on going and doing wacky, hairbrained things with his kids. If you want more wacky, hairbrained things from Chris, you can visit his website, chriscollin.com, or follow him on Twitter or Instagram at chriscollin3000. His most recent book is Off the Day the Internet Died, and we'll link to all of that in our show notes. He also created several of the songs you heard throughout the episode. And a final shout-out to Oklahoma and his song, Mandy Sue. Ready for more travel stories? Visit us online at afarcom traveltales, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Afar Media. If you enjoyed today's adventure, we hope you'll come back in two weeks for more great stories. Subscribing makes this easy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to rate and review us. It helps other travelers find the show. This has been Travel Tales, a production of Afar Media and Boom Integrated. Our podcast is produced by Aisling Green, Adrian Glover, and Robin Lai. Post-production was by John Marshall Media staff Jen Grossman and Clint Rhodes. Music composition by Alan Crusha. And a special thanks to Irene Wang and Angela Johnston. I'm Acelyn Green, your traveling as much as I possibly can host. I am so happy to be on the road again. As we explore the world this year, remember that travel begins the moment we walk out our front door. Everyone has a travel tale. What's yours?